Amen. Thank you, choir, for that beautiful song and for leading us in worship, Bill and, and uh, Jeannie and, and Miss Glenda. Thank you for your leadership as well. As we begin our time of study today, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning knowing that you are indeed the only true God. Lord, that you are, are, have magnified your, your name in the creation that you have made. You have shown yourself to be truly the great and wonderful God of this universe. But you have also, and more importantly, you have magnified your name in the people that you have called your own, the church. And so, Father, we come to you today as your church, seeking to glorify you in the songs that we sing and the words that we read, the prayers that we offer and the word that is proclaimed. So, Father, during this time of proclamation, Lord, I pray that you would use me, your humble clay vessel, to pour out the glories of God to these, your people. Father, I pray that you would open our ears to hear the words that you would have us to hear, open our eyes to see your glory. And that you would open our minds that we might receive and believe the truth of the gospel. Father, I pray that you would lead us now. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So this morning we're going to actually be in two passages. So if you want to go and be go ahead and be turning in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and then Ephesians chapter 4. And keep your finger in both. We'll start in Deuteronomy 6. And then we'll go to Ephesians chapter 4 towards the end of the sermon today. Now, when I was first starting out in ministry, I had a, a pastor under whom I served that said, Cursed is the man who does not preach about mothers on Mother's Day. And uh, I, I have never lived by that, that, that uh, exhortation. And I, I don't intend to today. Uh, we are actually going to move on in our study of the doctrine of worship and mothers, I'm sorry, I, I, I hate that we won't spend any time focusing on you during the sermon series, but if you're a good Christian mother, I trust that you will understand and that you would rather see the Lord magnified than, than mothers magnified. And so we'll spend our time today studying from God's Word. And I, actually, a lot of what I say today and over the next six weeks will apply to mothers and fathers and and children and all of that. And so uh, we'll, we'll kind of catch all of that at some point in our study in this section of our series. But I want to focus today on a very practical aspect of worship. In fact, we've we spent a great deal of time in our study in the doctrine of worship focusing on these, these high, lofty theological ideas as we've sought to answer the questions of who we worship and why we worship and what worship is. And now we're going to turn to very practical applications of what we've now been studying over the last uh, five months or so. And I know some of you are probably itching to get there because you've probably gone through all this theological stuff. And some people might be like me. Some of you might be like me. And I, I could spend all day, every day studying deep theology and, 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 and reading big words and, and all that. And some of you are maybe more like, uh, 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 maybe more on the practical side. And you've just been suffering through all these big words and Hebrew words and all of that thinking, man, will he ever get to some life application. Well, we're finally moving 
to that stage in this sermon series that we're in. And so we're going to start looking at the practical applications of worship. And I've said several times in this sermon series that worship is more than just a Sunday morning event. Worship is the purpose for which we were created. We were made to worship. And because of that, worship is a lifelong, everyday act. But there are also specific times and ways in which we worship. And so over the next six weeks, I want to look at the when and where of worship. So we've been asking the who, what, when, where, why, and how of worship. We've, been, we've asked the who and the why and the what. And so now we're moving on to the when and the where of worship. And we're going to look at the ways and the, the places in which we worship. And as we go through that, we're going to start each week in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And we're going to launch from that each week. This is a famous passage. You, you know it probably by heart. At least verse 4 of Deuteronomy chapter 6 you know by heart. And this is known in, uh, to the Jews as the Shema, which means to hear. Because Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 begins with, Hear, O Israel. And from this passage and also complementary passages in Ephesians chapter 4 and 5, I want you to see the personal, family, and congregational aspects of worship. So we're going to look at each one of those uh, different aspects of worship during the next six weeks. And as we go through each of those, I want to use the definitions that we just finished up when we were asking what worship is. I want to use that, those definitions of worship to answer four questions about personal worship and family worship and congregational worship. And those four questions that we'll try to answer each week is this, are this. How do I magnify the Lordship of Christ through this aspect of worship? How do I draw near to God through this aspect of worship? How do I give of my life through this aspect of worship? And lastly, how do I praise God through this aspect of worship? So we're going to answer those questions at the end of the sermon today as we understand the first aspect of worship, which is personal worship. So let's begin this morning by reading Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 15. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 15, God's word says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill 
and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are, all, uh, who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst, and he is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. So from this passage today, I want you to understand that personal worship is the heartfelt daily obedience to our Lord's command. Personal worship is the heartfelt daily obedience to our Lord's command. We're going to look at this text in three points today. First, the attitude of personal worship. Second, the action of personal worship. And third, the anchor of personal worship. But before I can get into these points, I need to address a common misconception about personal worship because it's, it's very popular in our day. And in fact, there are some popular uh, Christian teachers that, and books on personal worship. And we spend a lot of time focusing on your individual worship day in and day out that I want to clear up a, a bit of a myth or a, a misconception about what personal worship is. Because this popular to speak of personal worship as the individualized version of what we do on Sunday morning. So many popular teachers portray personal worship as basically the Sunday worship service shrunk down to fit in your pocket or in your earbuds. So the error, uh, the error in this, in talking about personal worship as just basically doing the things you do in church on, uh, on a daily basis is not so much in the actions because it's great to listen to a sermon on a podcast on your iPhone or to sing songs in your car, sing praise songs in your car. There's nothing wrong with that. You should do those things. The problem is with a tendency to equate personal worship with congregational worship. Or the bigger concern that I have is a tendency to substitute personal worship for congregational worship. So some people might think that, well, you know, I sang a Gaither song on the way to work today, so I'm good for this week on my public on, on my worship to God. Or I read my Bible every day this week, so you know what? I think I can I can take off this Sunday morning. Well, I'll sleep to twelve. Won't worry about going to church today. I, I I'm concerned that we have made this an either or question. We have made it an issue of you either worship on Sunday morning or you worship day in and day out in your personal life. But the faithful Christian is a person who is committed to personal, family, and congregational worship. Not or, but and all of those things. So with that said, let's consider the attitude of personal worship from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. Now, to set the scene, I want you to understand first that 
all of Deuteronomy. Now, can you all imagine this? This sermon may go long anyway, but can you imagine all of Deuteronomy is a sermon? So y'all ain't got nothing to say to me about time constraints, okay? Because if you read Deuteronomy, it takes you a while. And all of Deuteronomy is a sermon from Moses to the people of Israel before they entered the promised land. He knows that he can't enter, so he wants to give them these last instructions and reminders before they go. And it's also important to note that chapter 6 comes right on the hills and is, is heavily dependent on chapter 5, where Moses reiterates and, and kind of extends the Ten Commandments. So after reminding the people of Israel about the Ten Commandments, Moses, Moses begins this famous passage that we find here, and he begins with the exhortation to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Now, this is what Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, would call the greatest commandment, along with the command to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says that on these two commandments hinge all of the law. In other words, the reason this right here is the greatest commandment is because if you love God, you desire God more than anything else in your life, and you won't break the commandments. If you love God, then if you think about the way the Ten Commandments begin with not worshiping other gods and not making idols and not uh, taking the Lord's name in vain and honoring the Sabbath, if you love God, then you won't do those things. You won't disobey Him by going after other gods or making idols or taking His name in vain or forsaking congregational worship. So our personal worship of God starts with our inner desires. Each one of us worships the Lord when we set our hearts on the Lord. We worship God when the whole of our being, our soul, is shaped by Him. And we worship God when we commit all of our energies, our strength, to His glory. So second, let's consider the actions of personal worship. Notice verse 6. In verse 6, Moses goes on to tell the Israelites, These words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. Now, when we see this, we have to ask, what words? What words is Moses talking about when he says, these words shall be on your heart? Moses is referring to the Ten Commandments back in chapter 5. Now, I want you to notice that the love for God is intertwined with a deep devotion to the Word of God. Understand that there is no way to separate love for God from knowledge of God. Now, it's popular in our day to make a distinction. In fact, you've probably heard this distinction between head knowledge and heart knowledge. But the Bible makes no such distinction. In order to love God, we have to know Him. I mean, that's true in every relationship, right? If you're going to love your mama, you got to know your mama. If I came to you today and told you, man, I just can't tell you how much I love my mother. I mean, she means the world to me. 
And you, you said, oh, really? Uh, uh, what, what's your mom's favorite vacation? And if I said, if I responded to that with, oh, no, I, I don't know anything about my mom. I just, I just love her. You would think I was crazy, right? Because in order to love my mother, I have to know her. And if I don't know her, then I can't love her that well. I can't show her the love that she deserves. And it wouldn't be very loving to just say, look, I don't want to know anything about you. I just want to love you. In a greater sense, if we're going to love God, we must know Him. So, personal worship involves growing in our knowledge of and our obedience to God's Word. And finally, let's consider the anchor of personal worship. In verses 12 through 15, uh, Moses reminds the Israelites that, they, that God delivered them from, quote, the house of slavery. Remember, God brought the people out of Egypt. He brought them out of slavery in Egypt and he gave them. He is now at this point in the story, brought them to the, the foothills of the promised land. They are ready to enter into the promise that God had made to Abraham over 400 years ago. And God's reminding them of that because the grace that he showed the Israelites in deliver the, delivering them out of the hands of the Egyptians, that ought to anchor them in a commitment to the Lord that is evidenced in their obedience. Understand, we don't obey God in order to earn His favor. We obey God because of His favor. We obey God because of His love not in order to gain His love. In much the same way, if you want to continue that analogy, that we, we obey our mothers. We don't obey our mothers so that we get love from them. We know that our mothers love us, and we obey them out of that love. Or really, if you want to show them love, you will obey them. But you don't obey them for the sake of their love, but because they have loved you. And so... God, uh, Moses reminds the people of what God has done, the grace that he has given them, and that ought to motivate the people of God to serve him because of his grace. God has taken them out of the bondage of Egypt, and now he is their king, and they ought to serve and love him because of what he has done for them. So the concept of the heart the concept of loving God with our hearts figures very heavily into the book of Deuteronomy. Moses would say time and again that the people need to guard their hearts. And he would tell them in chapter 10, verse 16, circumcise your hearts and no longer be stubborn. And yet the people would fail time and again to love God with all of their hearts. Moses would say in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 4, that the problem was that the Lord had not given them a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. And it was apparent because if you know the story of Israel, you know that the people never fully obeyed God to the point that God would destroy Jerusalem and lead them away into exile. And the problem was 
They needed a new heart. And God promised in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, that there would come a day when He would give them a new heart. And because they had a new heart, they would naturally obey the Word of God. God would ultimately fulfill this promise to give His people a new heart through His Son, Jesus Christ. It is because of Jesus that we're able to truly worship God, that we're able to truly obey God through a faithful heart that desires the things of God. Now to see that, flip over with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 22 says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you have been sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul begins, to, uh, begins with this passage by telling the Gentile Christians that are in the church at Ephesus to turn away from their old pagan way of life and to instead walk in the light of of Christ. Now notice in verse 22, he says that the presence of Christ in the life of the believer enables that believer to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. In Christ, we have been given what Paul calls a new self that has been made in the likeness of God. And so what we have right here is the fulfillment of God's promise that he made all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 29, that God would give them a new heart. God has, through the work of Christ, 
and through the presence of His Holy Spirit, given us a heart that now gives us the desires to live in obedience to Him. So this means that we can now love God as we should with all of our hearts, soul, and mind and strength. So with that in mind, let's spend the last little bit of time we have answering these four questions that I gave you about personal worship at the beginning. And let's use this passage to do that, to answer these questions. So first, first question I gave you at the beginning is, how do I magnify the Lordship of Christ through my personal worship? Now we do this, we magnify Christ by, as Paul calls it, putting on Christ. We find what that means to me is we find our identity not in our old life, but in Christ. Now, our society is obsessed with identity. We're obsessed with the identity of our race, our sexual orientation, our gender identity, our political persuasion. Even even our work is used to identify us. If you think about the first question you ask somebody after you ask them what their name is, is what do you do? We identify ourselves based on our work. We identify ourselves based on our marital status or our children. But all of those identities are true about us. But if you are in Christ, all of those other things fade into the background as Christ becomes supreme in your life. So every decision, everything that you do in this life ultimately should be filtered through your identity with Christ. Second, second question, how do I draw near to God through personal worship? Paul tells the Ephesians in verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you have been sealed. Now, because of the work of Christ, we have the presence of God in us through His Holy Spirit. So when we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm asked often, in fact, it's probably the most popular question I get asked as a pastor, is how do I know that I'm saved? And my answer is always going to be, I'll go ahead and tell you, if you have intentions of asking me this, I'll go ahead and tell you my answer. How do you know that you're saved? My answer is always going to be, do you hate your sin? The clearest evidence that you are saved is the fact fact that God's Spirit will not let you love your sin. And you will hate the fact that you grieve the Holy Spirit. If you're okay with what you're doing, all of us sin. But if you're okay with what you're doing, if you like it and you come back to it without the single most, uh, the, a single regret, then it is likely the case that God's Spirit does not abide in you. But if you hate your sin, if you long to be closer to God, if you long for His Spirit to make Himself known in you, then it is likely the case that you are in Christ. And so, we want to live in such a way that we do not grieve the Spirit. So to draw near to God, we must live in obedience to His commands. We must live in obedience to the Spirit. Third, How do I give of my life through personal worship? 
Well, Paul lists a number of ways that we do this, but I want to drill down on one. In verse 25, he says that we should put away falsehood and instead we should speak the truth. Then down in verse 29, he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. So both of these statements are the same idea. We should sacrifice what we do and what we say for the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. (laughs) This has to be one of the hardest things we have to do as Christians. We so badly want to be right. We so badly want to be first. We so badly want to be recognized. But in the family of God, our first concern should not be for our own standing, but for the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should sacrifice what we want for the good of others. We should sacrifice our own recognition for the recognition of others. Maybe sometimes the best way we can sacrifice to the Lord is stop talking. Maybe the best way we can sacrifice to the Lord is not to say what we're thinking when we want to say it. Oftentimes, sacrificing to the Lord is putting our brothers and sisters before our own concerns. Finally, how do I praise God through personal worship? Again, Paul lists a number of ways, but I want to point out two ways. First, in verse 28, he tells the thief to turn away from his old life of stealing and to instead work with his hands so that he might be able to give to those in need. Now, I know this is directed to the thief, but I think it applies to everyone that our work honors God. What we do with our hands honors God. It is a praise to God that we make good things and that we benefit others in what we do. And not only that, but we can use the money that we make to benefit those who are in need. We can give in a way that benefits others. And when we do that, we bring praise to God. And then secondly, in verse 32, Paul encourages the Ephesians to forgive one another as, Christ, as God in Christ forgave you. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, Jesus says that the merciful are those who are blessed. So we find here that forgiveness is also a way that we praise God. So brothers and sisters, personal worship is more than just singing along to a Gaither song in the car or reading a devotional book each morning. Now, certainly these can be acts of worship, but my concern is if we listen to Christian music while finding our identity in our sexuality or our work or something else besides Christ, we are not worshiping. It doesn't matter that you like good Christian music if you are living in discord Uh, with God's word. It doesn't matter that you sing to the top of your lungs if you are not living in a way that glorifies God. You can't claim to worship God while living in a way that does not honor Him. If we have a quiet time every morning 
We're faithful to it. We read Scripture every day. We read the Bible in a year. We do all of that. And at the same time, we're harboring and reveling in our sin. Or we're hating our fellow brother or sister in Christ. We're not worshiping. You can read all the Scripture you want, but if you don't obey it, you're not worshiping. The way that we worship God is to allow the Word of God to take root in our lives so that we live it out day in and day out. That is what personal worship is. It is not just the things we do in reading Scripture or praying or singing or whatever it is. It's in the actions we live out day in and day out as we live in obedience to the commands of Christ. So I hope that we will leave this place ready to serve God and to live for Him in an act of worship as we are obedient to Him in our personal worship to Him day in and day out. Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Word of God that dwells in us through the presence of His Spirit. Lord, we thank You for the fact that You have given us new hearts if we are in Christ. And because of that, we are able to live in obedience to You. Father, I pray that as we leave this place today, that we would glorify you in the way that we live, in, the, in our obedience to your word, in our faithfulness, in our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ and those in our community. I pray that you would bless us now as we continue to worship. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.